First uh, Peter uh, 2, verse 1 to 5, and then we're going to skip down for to verse 9 and 10. Um, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Um, but you are chosen... Uh, oh, sorry, verse 4. Um, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And verse 9. Uh, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who are called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, if you've been around Peace and G's at the seven o'clock service over the last two or three weeks, uh, you'll know that we're going through these big themes in the Bible. We had that Bible overview uh, a few weeks ago, and then we've looked at things like the kingdom and covenant. And tonight we look at another thread that runs right the way through the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it's the idea of priest. Priest. Now, I wonder uh, what comes to your mind when you think of the word priest. Um, I actually preached on Jesus, our great high priest, from the book of Hebrews, uh, just at the end of November. And I asked our 11 o'clock congregation what came to mind when they thought of the word priest. And, and maybe it'll be the same for you. So maybe when you hear the word priest, uh, you think of one of the clergy team here at P's and G's. Uh, so you might think of myself, uh, or you might think of Libby. Or you might think of James, and you might think of Rich. Or maybe if you're a bit older, um, your mind goes a bit back, and you think of Father Ted. And uh, it, I realized when I put this picture up in, in November, that in fact this could be taken as an early representation of the P's and G's clergy team. Uh, because I'm at the front, uh, that's me, that's Rich at the back, uh, James is on the right or left in the red, and, and Libby has frankly looked better, um, we have to say. Um, but maybe that's what comes to mind when you, you think of the word priest. Uh, maybe it's Dawn French uh, in, in the Vicar of Dibley. Uh, maybe if you bring it up to, to speed, maybe it's uh, Adam Smallbone in the television series Rev. Actually, perhaps the most realistic portrayal of what it is to be in the ordained ministry in an Anglican or Episcopal church. Maybe you've seen the recent harrowing film by Martin Scorsese called Silence, uh, which looks at these Roman Catholic priests um, who, who, who go to Japan and all sorts of horrendous things uh, that happen to them and some really, really deep questions about what it is to be a follower of Christ, what it is to be a priest, uh, what it is to pray and what it is to heal nothing when you pray. And the idea of priesthood, as I say, is one that occurs again and again in Old and New Testaments. 
Um, so very simply, what is a priest? The, the picture on, on the screen at the moment is that, that lovely Amazon advert at Christmas where uh, the priest and the imam both uh, bought presents of kneel, kneeling pads uh, for each other because they were aware of each other and the next day Amazon, uh, as if by a miracle, although not a real miracle uh, because they'd ordered it through Amazon, um, somehow presented both of them with kneeling pads. What does a priest do, very simply? A priest is a go-between between God and people. A priest is a go-between between God and people. And in the Old Testament, there were thousands of priests. And God, because he, needed the, he knew that the people of Israel needed help, he gave them three things. He gave them kings because they asked him for a king, even though he was supposed to be their king. He gave them prophets so that they could hear his voice, but he also gave them priests. And the priests were used by God to make sacrifices and to pray on behalf of the people in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was restricted to one of the tribes of Israel, the sons of Aaron, who was the assistant to Moses. And if you look in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, priests in the Old Testament had incredibly detailed instructions. There were incredibly detailed instructions as to what clothes they should wear, something that we don't tend to follow uh, nowadays if you've seen James Green and his wardrobe. Um, but very, very detailed instructions as to what clothes they should wear. Very, very detailed instructions as to what they should do. Very, very detailed instructions as to what they should uh, say. Very, very detailed instructions as to who was qualified in order to be a priest. And there are chapters and chapters and chapters laying out what it means to be a priest in the Old Testament. And priests were introduced basically for one reason, to navigate the territory between God and people. Because God was so holy, people kept, as it were, sort of tripping into God's arena. And something happened to them. When they touched the Ark of the Covenant, when they saw God face to face, they couldn't live. And people died. And so basically this whole system was set up with priests and a special place and a special time and a special sacrifice, what was known as the Day of Atonement, where once a year one of the priests was picked out once in his life to go and make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people that their sins might be atoned for, that their sins might be forgiven. So priests are there to navigate the territory between God and humanity, to be a go-between between God and Israel, his chosen people. God wanted to be in a relationship with people, but time and time again, if you strayed into God's presence, it was too much and people died. So the priesthood was introduced to regulate, control, and keep safe the relationship between God and Israel. People, exclusively all men in the Old Testament, were appointed and chosen to act as mediators and representatives. Remember those two words, mediators and representatives between God and humanity, between God and Israel itself. 
Aaron and his sons and Aaron's descendants were chosen to be priests, to serve before God and to serve before Israel. And they interceded in prayer, they offered sacrifice for sin, and they mediated between Israel and God. So that's the Old Testament. Now along comes Jesus. And Jesus again and again is referred to as the king of kings. So God gives Israel prophets, priests, and kings. And now here comes Jesus, who is referred to as the king of kings. He introduces, as we saw last week, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He spoke about the kingdom and his kingdom not being not of this world. And he is the king. So from now on, Israel shouldn't need, and the people of God shouldn't need, a human king. He's referred to at one stage in John's gospel as the prophet. He's referred again in John's gospel as the word of God. The word became flesh. So now because Jesus has come, Israel doesn't need kings and Israel doesn't need prophets because the word and the prophet with a capital P has come. And also again and again in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as our great high priest. In his death on the cross, as we're going to remember in a few moments' time, through bread and wine, Jesus pays the price, atones for sin, and makes the sacrifice of all sacrifices... That means that from now on, Israel and the world don't just need no more kings, don't just need no more prophets in the sense that they had them before, but neither do they need any more priests because the sacrifice has been made upon the cross. Mediation has been made between God and people. Representation has been made between God and people. And now, there's no more need for kings, prophets, or priests, in one sense. In the way that they had been understood for hundreds of years in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 to 14, the writer describes Jesus in this way. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus is pictured, pictured as sitting down at the right hand of God. And that meant two things. One, he is on the same level as God the Father, but he sits down, he sits down at the right hand of God because, I'm going to pinch his stool, Brian, he sits down because his work is done. And he sits down because he doesn't need to do anything else. And that's the picture that we have of Jesus, our great high priest, who has finished his work. His work on the cross is complete. He's made atonement for sin. He's made representation. He's mediated between God and humanity. He himself has become the sacrifice on the cross. And his work on one level in terms of sacrifice is done. So he sits down at the right hand of God. Remember again, a priest is to represent God to people and people to God. And that's exactly who Jesus is. 
Jesus represents God to people. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But also he represents people to God because he's fully human. And because he's fully human, he's able to pay the price for your sin, for my sin, and the sin of the whole world. He makes atonement for sin. He makes representation. He makes mediation. A priest is to make a sacrifice for sin, and Jesus has made a sacrifice for sin. But Jesus doesn't just sit down and say, that's it, my work is finished. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus doesn't just sit down at the right hand of God, but also that he prays for us. A priest intercedes for people. A priest prays for people. Jesus is our great high priest, and he is praying for us. He is praying for us. He is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. It was John Wimber, the church leader who founded the Vineyard Movement, who said there is good news and bad news. The good news is that Jesus is praying for us. The bad news is we're going to need it. Jesus is praying for you. If ever you're tempted to think, you know, no, I don't really have anybody that I can ask to pray for this thing, ask Jesus to pray for you. That's why as Protestants we struggle sometimes with the idea of the Roman Catholic idea of asking uh, people to ask saints uh, to pray for them. The idea is, is logical. You, you know, if, if I want to get a message to Mark... Well, who, I can either do it from here, saying, hi, Mark. Hi. Making sure he's awake. But actually, a much better idea is to tell Libby, because Libby is next to Mark. So I can pass a message to Libby, and Libby can pass a message on to Mark because she's next to him. And that's the idea with saints. They're there. They're nearer God. So you, you, you put a request in because they're just next to God. So you put a request in. Well, Protestants say, well, hang on. If we've got direct access to the Father, we can praise to the Father and we can also ask Jesus to pray for us because we're told in the New Testament that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. So it might be great to ask somebody to pray for you. So I might ask Libby to pray for me or Mark to pray for me or Jess or, or Ash and their prayers are okay. <laughs> but how much better to ask Jesus to pray for me with respect because he probably knows a bit more about prayer than these four. And that's the idea that Jesus is there interceding on our behalf. That Jesus himself is praying for us. Now why does all that matter? Because in the New Testament what we see is that we've got these thousands of priests going down hundreds of years in the Old Testament. The sons of Aaron. And there they are in the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem making sacrifice once a, once a year on the Day of Atonement for, for the people that go into the Holy of Holies. They're told that they can go into the Holy of Holies once a year on this particular day and they can do it once in their career and they make atonement for the sins of the people. They sacrifice a goat or a sheep or some sort of animal that's been prescribed and they, they kill it and people say our sins are forgiven and it's sort of a visual aid. So you have the, all these thousands of, of, of priests down the years who all find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus, who is our great high priest, who surpasses all the priests who have been before. He is the best 
priest that they have ever seen. He's the best priest that the world has ever known. But something happens after the cross and after the resurrection. Something happens in this thing called the church. Because in that reading that we had from 1 Peter chapter 2, we are described as a royal priesthood. We are the church and we are described as a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people belonging to God. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross was perfect and once for all. We can add nothing to it. Jesus is the Father's representative to humanity and humanity's representative to the Father. He mediates on our behalf, but Simon Peter, the one whom Jesus looked at and said, you are Peter and upon you I will build my church, he writes a letter to the early church and he says, you are a royal priesthood. You are are a holy nation. And from now on what Peter is saying, because the priesthood of Jesus is complete, it's now not about special people wearing special clothes on special days in special places saying special words and restricted just to one group of people, the descendants of Aaron, Now, rather than thousands of priests, which find their fulfillment in the person of Jesus, now we have millions of priests, because every single Christian is a priest. Every single Christian is a priest. And he paints this amazing picture of what it means to be a priest. He uses deliberately four descriptions from Exodus chapter 19 as he comes into 1 Peter and chapter 2. He says, you are, and these are the four, a chosen people, and that's a direct reference back to Exodus 19 when God is choosing people to be priests and choosing people to be his people. He says, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. So there used to be Israel, And now the church is a holy nation and you are a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And he gives this very stark contrast. He says very simply once, you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. And because you weren't people, and now are people, remember J. John at a university mission, um, in a really helpful way, uh, just looking out at this crowd of about 500 students and just going, if you're not a Christian, you're subhuman. How to win friends and influence people. Theologically correct, but not very diplomatic. But that, in essence, is what Peter is saying. You were once not a people, but now you are people. Because you have received mercy, you've received the forgiveness of God, your sins have been atoned for, your sins have been forgiven, and now, once you are not a people, once you are in darkness, but now you've received mercy, you're in light, and you are people, you are people as you were always meant to be. You are fully human because 
fully human people live in relationship with God. If you don't live in a relationship with God, you are not humanity as it was fully intended to be. That was the essence of what J. John was trying to communicate as, as he put his both feet in it. You weren't a people, but now you are people. You hadn't received mercy, but now you have. You were in darkness, but now you are in light. And now you're in light, you are those four things. You, not Israel. You, he says to the church across the world, and to P's and G's tonight, he says you are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a people belonging to God. And you are a royal priesthood. He said it's not about buildings or sacrifices or special words but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. I love the description that Nicky Gumbel used uh, last Sunday in one of his talks. And he described church in this way. He said, the church is not an organization you join. It's a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you are healed. You don't go to church. You are the church. You are the people of God. It's always, as long as I lived in Scotland, fascinated me that the Greek word for church is ecclesia. And I've done a bit of research, and I think it's the same Greek root that we get the word kali for. Ecclesia, ecclesiastical, all those terms, is the same Greek root as Kaylee. Church is supposed to be like a Kaylee. It's supposed to be people coming together. It's supposed to be fun. I know, but it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be participatory. It's supposed to be communal. It's supposed to be about relationships. It's supposed to be about people bringing what they bring and coming together. That's what a Kaylee in essence is. A Kaylee actually isn't just a dance. A Kaylee really is when somebody brings a dance, somebody else brings a song, someone else brings a poem, somebody else brings a picture, somebody else, they all bring their own thing. That's what a really good Kaylee is. An ecclesia, a church, should be like a Kaylee. But church is not a building that you come to. In the words of Nicky Gumbel, it is a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you are healed. And as such, you are a royal priesthood, Peter says. Peter, who'd mucked things up time after time. Peter, who got things wrong again and again. Peter, who denied Jesus. Peter, who thought he knew better than Jesus. Peter, who ran away from Jesus. Peter, who made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake and had to have that excruciating restoration where Jesus looked at him after the resurrection and, and cooks breakfast for his followers uh, by the Sea of Galilee. And, and he looks at Simon Peter and, and this, this guy who's professed that he will love Jesus more than anybody else in the world, and yet denies him three times, just before Jesus is arrested and, and goes to the cross. Three times, Jesus asks him the very simple question, Simon, do you love me? 
And he doesn't call him Peter, he calls him Simon. He calls him by his old name. And in the original Greek, it's, it's even more penetrating because there are four words for the word to love. And Peter has said, I'll be with you forever, Jesus. I'll love you with everything I've got. I will agape you, Jesus. And Jesus says, do you agape me, Simon? Do you love me with everything that you've got? Do you love me 100%? Do you love me that you're willing to die for me? And in John's gospel, we're told that Simon looks back at Jesus and says, Lord, you know that I filio you. I love you like a brother. And again, Jesus asks, Simon, do you agape me? Do you love me self-sacrificially? Do you love me with everything that you've got? Do you love me that you're willing to die for me? And again, Simon says, I filio you. I love you like a brother. I love you like a friend. I, he can't say the word agape. And we're told the third time Jesus asks him, and again in John chapter 21, it says that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. But it may be significant that in the Greek, what Jesus says is, not Simon, do you agape me? But Simon, do you filio me? Do you love me like a brother? Do you love me like a friend? And it's, it's as though Jesus is, is taking Simon Peter through a sort of restorative process where he has to take him down with each question. So at the end, Simon Peter just has to say, Lord, you know all things. And the bluster is gone, the ego is gone, the, the front is gone, and Simon Peter just says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I filio you. I love you like a friend. I love you like a brother. And Jesus, that's all I've got. And that's where Jesus says, in essence, that's what I'm waiting for, Simon. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for you to be real with me and real with yourself. And now, Simon, I'm going to reinstate you. And Simon Peter, somebody will take you and dress you and you will go where you do not want to go. And he describes and he predicts the death by which Peter would die. But he reinstates Simon Peter and he calls him Peter and he builds his church upon Peter. So if anybody knew what it was like to say, I'm not good enough or I've mucked up or I'm worthless or I thought I was something, but actually, and I realize in comparison with Jesus, I'm nothing. It was Simon Peter. And Simon Peter says to the church, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen people. You are a people belonging to God. And Peter himself had had to go through and discover what it actually meant to belong to God. And it was painful, but it was worth it. In the Reformation, we rediscovered this truth of the priesthood of all believers. Sadly, over the, the centuries in what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, the notion of priesthood had, had somehow got dis, well, just out of kilter with, with what God had really intended. And with the Reformation that we celebrate the 500th anniversary of this year, one of the things that was rediscovered was the priesthood of all believers. Now, 
we need to be careful with this because what is not meant in the priesthood of all believers is that either we don't need priests anymore because Libby and me and James and Richard be out of a job. Neither was it meant that we didn't need priests, but we should be our own priests. But actually it was something more subtle and more profound. Because what the doctrine of the Reformation of the priesthood of all believers actually meant is that every Christian is a priest. And it's not that we don't need priests anymore or that we should be our own priests, but actually we should be priests for each other. And that's very different. You see, we don't just believe in the priesthood of all believers, but more we believe in the priesthood of the whole church. Now, it so happens that we do belong to and are part of the Episcopal or Anglican Church that does have three orders of ministers. And so we have bishops, and we do have priests, and we do have deacons. And just because of the way in which the church is structured, it means that, for example, this evening, in this building, under Episcopal Anglican rules, it would either be Libby or Rich or myself or James who can say the words over the bread and the wine. And there's good reasons why that is the case. But actually, we aren't the biblical picture of priesthood. You are the biblical picture of priesthood. Because you are all priests as well. It's the priesthood of the whole church, not just the priesthood of all believers. Graham Tomlin, who is the Bishop of Kensington, draws this subtle distinction. It's not that we don't need priests anymore, but that we should be priests for each other. And in his book, The Widening Circle, he puts forward the idea that God has always worked through structures. So creation is cared for through humanity. Society is overseen through government. People are ministered to through the church, and the church is discipled through its leaders and members. So there is structure. It's not chaos. It's not everyone can pitch in and do whatever they want. We have roles and we have responsibilities, and we have different gifts. But fundamentally, we are called to be priests to creation, to government, to society, to structures, to individuals, and to each other. But remember what it means to be a priest. Being a priest means being a representative and being a mediator. It means being a representative and a go-between between God and people. It means praying for people and bringing them to God and bringing God to people. So when we say you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, your priestly ministry is to be a representative of God. It's to be a mediator between God and people. It's to pray for people and to bring them to God. Your priestly ministry, your priestly vocation might be as a school teacher. It might be as a student. It might be as a parent. It might be as a worker in the NHS. It might be as a chemist. It might be as an engineer. But wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, 
That is your priestly vocation and your priestly context. Because wherever you are, you have a responsibility to be a representative of God to people. So when you get dressed for work tomorrow morning, if you have a job, or when you get dressed tomorrow morning, if you don't have a job, you are putting on your priestly garments. And God has called you to be a priest tomorrow, wherever you find yourself. And on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, and on Thursday, and on Friday, and on Saturday, and on Sunday, and on Monday, and on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, and on Thursday, and on... It might be your school uniform. It might be your lab coat. It might be whatever it is you wear to do whatever you do. Those are your priestly garments. And you have got a responsibility to be a representative of God to people. Because you are a royal priesthood. And maybe before you've been told that you're too old or you're too young. Maybe before you've been told you're the wrong gender or you're the wrong class. But the reality is that you are a royal priesthood. You are called to be a representative of God. And to show God to people and people to God. And it's not just about the professionals. One of the dangers, and boy do we need new types of leaders in the church in Scotland. And we believe that God will call some of you to ordained ministry in the church. He may do that. But the danger of when we talk about that is that we create this sort of tier that somehow that means that those people who are called to ordain ministry in the church are more spiritual and more special and more valuable than everybody else in the church. And that's just not true. I have a theory after being an ordained priest in the church for 25 years is that God looked at Libby and God looked at me And God looked at James, and God looked at Rich, and he thought, boy, if those people aren't paid to pray, they're not going to do it. (laughs) And yes, the church recognized a gift and a call, and we were set aside to do what we do, and we do it with all that we can and the best way that we can, but it doesn't mean that we're more important. It doesn't mean that we're more special. It doesn't mean that we're better than people who, who aren't ordained by the church. It just means that we have a different call. But it doesn't mean that it's less important, and it doesn't mean that it's more important. It just means that it's different. But the reality is that you have a call on your life. You have a priestly vocation as a retired person, as a school pupil, as a student at university, as an NHS worker, as somebody who works in the parliament, as somebody who works in the lawyer, as somebody who is unemployed, as somebody who is homeless. You have a priestly vocation. Because you are a royal priesthood.